Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number 21, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Joe Fox. Woo, I'm back. I'm back after 13 episodes. Is that how long it's been? Yeah, that's how long it's been, 13 episodes. But no, happy to be back. If you're a new listener to the show, um, Joe did join us for a few of our early episodes and then um, I think last time we... We, we all hung out was probably play Blackpool yeah yeah I mean I've not had a chance to be on the show recently been very busy unfortunately doing adult things like buying houses etc and getting over your hangover from and Blackpool. getting over my hangover <laughs> from Blackpool <laughs> it's, it's taken that long it took that long I've been comatose for two weeks <laughs> well welcome back Joe thank you and uh, we did talk last week about this um, this poll that we're currently up for um, the world's best podcast yeah um, and uh, we've been getting some votes but we need some more guys now bear in mind I think uh, at the end of the weekend last week we had about 1500 listeners um, on SoundCloud alone yep. of our last episode. We've got about 90 votes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was, na- yeah, 98, I just checked. 98 the current yeah. time. We're sixth, it. though. Well, sixth. You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we did do a little appeal last week, and we have made it into the top ten already, and, you know, we do the show for free every week. We yep. never charge for it. We never ask anything of you. That's it. And it'll take you a second to vote in this poll. Literally, it's one click of the mouse, isn't it? On yeah, Facebook. and it, even when we share it, you'll see the poll underneath. You don't need to go through a massive procedure. Yep. It's just like, click... I've had some people yeah. commenting on the post going, I'll vote for it later. And I'm like, it's less effort to actually click the button. <laughs> Just do it now. The link's right there. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I'm one of these guys. I'm lazy as anything. You know, people say stuff like that. I'm early, I'll do it later, whatever. We'll put the link in the show notes on the retrohour.com. There is an article page on there. It's on our Facebook. We've made it dead easy to find. It'll take you a second. And, you know, just be nice to get some recognition for this show. And uh... and, and for our great guests. And talking of great guests today. Yeah, now, uh, well, look, I think every the world's been going amiga crazy recently. It has. And, I uh, haven't. Uh, no, Joe hasn't. And he always comes on the Amiga shows as well. So. Yeah, I don't know guy. anything about Amiga. And every time it's like, oh, come on the show. Oh, we've got an Amiga guest. Oh, all right, brilliant. <laughs> He's our saying a Nintendo guy. Yeah, yeah. It's Tom Kalinske, you know. That hangover lasted too long, Joe. Yeah, it did. Um, but yeah, well, this week, uh, obviously, there was a new movie, you know, Bedrooms to Billions. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the Amiga years came out on um, Thursday last week. Two and a half hour documentary all about the Amiga. Mm. Really interesting. It's another Amiga film that's actually due out in about a week. Viva yeah, Amiga. Viva Amiga. Um, whose guests uh, we had on recently, the the guy behind that, Zach. And we had David Pleasance on last week, ex-MD of Commodore. So, you know, everyone's really, the Amiga's back on the radar, big style right now. So this week, we're going to be focusing on um, a very interesting part of the Amiga culture, the demo scene. Yeah, and particularly the demo scene music. I've talked to Hoffman and Mm -hmm. got him on the show today. Hoffman's not a massive name, Mm -hmm. but he's good. I really, really love his music. And if there's anyone that's still producing mods... Hoffman's making the best at the moment. I, I think he may be one of the only guys producing mods in 2016. So. Well, for those who are not big Amiga heads, mod is actually the name of the um, the Amiga's music file format. And, uh, you know, it, it's like the Amiga sound chip's only 8-bit, isn't it? The yeah, so it's like four channels, you know. He does some amazing stuff with that. I'm looking at his CV here. You know, he's a member of Ghost in 1992, Dual Crew Shining, uh, Mono, Unstable Listening, Radiance in 94, Quartz, you know, these are like the big yeah. Amiga demo groups back in the day. He's writing his own software as well at the moment, and he's even got his own record label. Yeah. So this is going to be <laughs> really, really interesting. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah. And it, was he the guy behind these Amiga deck, the... Yeah, yeah, PT-1210. He wrote it in assembly. Wow, okay. So we're going to have to ask him about that. Because Ravi's got like two Amiga 1200s that he uses like as decks and yeah. there's software on it that essentially emulates a turntable. You can pitch bend it and all that. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can and loop it, take samples out. It's amazing. Oh, there's me pissing about on a Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Hoffman's going to be on in around 30 minutes from now. A bit of a special on the Amiga demo scene. I'm just taking my coat off. It's a bit warm in here, isn't it? So let's get into this week's news then. First of all, now this is quite interesting. If you ever wanted a quite unique 
wallet, you can turn an Atari cart into a wallet now. Yeah, it's like a little simple kind of hack that you can do. <laughs> you see, I thought like that sounds really cool, looks really cool. I wouldn't be able to make it myself because I'm useless, but I don't know. I could see me sitting on it and breaking it. But he does say, <laughs> he does say in the video it's not good for if you're a back pocket user for yeah. your wallet. But yeah, I, I, I'd snap it, but it's definitely very cool. I suppose you could use it to keep like SD cards in with all your Atari images, or you could use it for, you know, a little... Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be a wallet, I guess. Oh, you probably stick a Raspberry Pi or something in there and have a little... Uh... Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's actually quite cool. Have that hanging out the side of your TV or yeah, something. Yeah, just turn a whole cart into an Atari emulator. So essentially what this guy's done, um, he's put a video up here, and it's uh, Bob Claggett of I Like To Make Stuff, and he's basically hollowed out an Atari cart and put a hinge on the back of it and keeps all his store cards and his um, money in there as well. Love the fact that he actually shows he's using ET cartridge from the Atari 2600. So, uh, as we all know, that's uh, probably the best use of that game. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, but making a better use of it. <laughs> now, a classic franchise is back, and, you know, to be fair, I think there's a new Worms game comes out pretty much every six months. But this time, it's been 21 years since really Worms. that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes us all feel old. So this is Team 17 to bring out a new one, then. Uh, yeah, this is Worms Weapons of Mass Destruction, which uh, looks quite nice, uh, the multiplayer. I kind of got into Worms, uh, did Worms DC, and then Worms Armageddon, mm-hmm. which was the ultimate Worms for me. Later on, there was Worms 3D and stuff, but I think they kind of lost their way a little bit. Yeah, it looks like they're trying to get back to their roots. Like They did a few, obviously a lot of like, iOS and Android stuff mm-hmm. recently to try and get, get back to the originals, but this looks like they've gone really... Not back to basics, but taking it taking it back a few steps, but yeah, for the better, if that makes sense. It's 2D, isn't it? You, well, yeah, there's that as well. It's 2D straight away. That's the thing about the 3D Worms games. It always got a bit like, you know, I think it was in that stage of 3D's infancy where people just wanted to use 3D for the sake of using it, and it was a bit like, you don't actually need it in this kind of game. Yeah, I mean, I, I had Worms 3D for the GameCube, and mm. I remember enjoying it, but I f- think... the looking back to it it's one of those games which you think like oh it's really good but i think nostalgia was taking over because if it was one of those games it was one of the first games i bought myself with my own money yeah yeah when i was like 13 14 mm. so i i really enjoyed it at the time but i've gone back to play it since and just kind of gone oh this is really clunky and slow like well, they gave one away on the uh, the xbox one didn't they on the yeah but I, I couldn't really get into that i tried playing it a bit and i was like, you, you they forgot tried to, to give play it, like it. A, they tried <laughs> to give it like a campaign didn't they yeah, it was just like, a bit like i just want to go and kill some worms like essentially that's what worms is isn't it it's like you know blow hell out of the other team and that's it isn't it that's all anyone wants it to needs do. to that's be a fun. pick up and play yeah like not messing around yeah. with a tutorial and that's i think what happened with the xbox one when i got bored of that yeah like in 20 minutes uh, and <laughs> yeah. we were talking about the stats on this mm. that they've posted because we're looking at an article on Retro Gamer and uh, Joe made an interesting point. Yeah. How, how are they actually receiving <laughs> this stats? Because yeah. they're saying, you know, f- three million, over three million worms have died. I think that's three billion, actually. Three billion. Three okay, billion yeah. worms have died since it's launch in 1995. <laughs> Too many zeros. <laughs> and I was like, well, was it online then? But you didn't... I, you seem to think it was Armageddon was the first one. I think it was Armageddon, but I remember there being Worms World Tournaments and there being like <laughs> British champions yeah. and leaderboards. You someone, you know? someone was behind like keeping total of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a good job. Just like, <laughs> since the dawn of Worms, he's just kept a, a manual tally of every worm that's been killed. But what, what is quite interesting here, it said um, over 70 million copies of Worms have been sold today. That's pretty impressive. And, you know, I think you know, Worms originally came out on the Amiga. That was his yeah, first platform yeah. that it came out on. And it was quite late in the Amiga's life it was like 95 wasn't it it was and they had a Worms Director's Cup which was a special Amiga version that had stuff like Super Sheep and 
grandmas yeah. and all the extras. Yeah. But, you know, I knew everyone that had them, but I don't know anyone that bought them. So it's like <laughs> 70 million. You could probably double that with that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's 70 million paid for copies. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to find out about this um, new Worms game, it is coming out on uh, all the, the current consoles, PS4, Xbox One and PC, a little bit later on this year. And I'll uh, say one thing, sorry, uh, Team 17 are doing some fabulous games at the moment with the escapists mm-hmm. that's really good and flockers was really good so hopefully they'll get that goodness back into the worms franchise absolutely so if you want more info we'll put it on the show notes at the retro hour.com now there seems to be a bit of a thing recently about turning video games into movies again um <laughs> which is one we mentioned the other week shinobi is shinobi, getting made into yeah. a movie apparently shinobi's getting made into a yeah. movie yeah it makes more sense than battleships yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes more sense. To be yeah. fair, if you make battleships into a movie, you can make anything into a film, can't you? Yeah, well, this is well true. these ones sound a bit weird, but yeah. they've proposed now. Missile Command and Centipede. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking for Centipede, it's got to be like a B movie, you know, like a massive. Yeah. <laughs> no, they'll probably do something like Pixels and try to make it massive Hollywood. Oh. Yeah. Did you watch Pixels? I saw Pixels. What did you think? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> Who was that uh, Jonah Hill ripoff? Yeah, uh, he the really voice annoyed of Olaf. me. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. the voice of Olaf from Frozen. I think they're just kind of yeah. trying to push him. Let's make this guy really famous, kind of thing. It was all right. It was a good watch, but I wouldn't recommend it. Like, I wouldn't go. Yeah, Adam shouting. Sandler films. I'm really. Yeah, I wouldn't go shout of shouting from the rooftops. Go watch it, but it was yeah. a decent watch. You know, the days of Happy Gilmore are long behind him, I think, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is quite interesting, though. So essentially what they're saying is Atari, or the company that own the, the rights to the Atari franchises, have agreed to deal with a movie studio to make a Missile Command and Centipede into films. Now, I think by the looks of it, they've just given them rights to the trademark and the name. There's no info on who's directing or what kind of story is going to be in there. They basically said, yeah, you can use this name. Missile Command would just be set in NORAD. <laughs> fire, fire. But, you know, we, we talked when we mentioned the Shinobi thing, because we did say there's been a bit of a drought of good ninja movies recently. Yeah. Back yeah. in the early 90s, everything was ninja films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> apart from the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Michael Bay one that looks dreadful. You say oh, it looks I liked dreadful. it, yeah, the it, first it, it will, the next it, one. It is a bad film. Mm. Like, the first one was a dreadful film, but, I I, but at the same time, <laughs> I enjoyed it, and I'm going to go see the second one. Oh, but at the same go, time, yeah. it is crap. Like the first, I just thought it was daft when she was like, "Oh my god, it's Project Renaissance," and it's like, <laughs> "How did you forget that?" <laughs> like, it's, it's aimed at twelve-year-olds. Yeah. But uh, what's Michael Bay film, isn't it? Explosions yeah. everywhere yeah, in CGI. Explosions. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we, we did talk. We mentioned the Shinobi thing, though. That most video games that are turned into movies end up making really bad films. Yeah, we couldn't, couldn't really think of one that had actually made the transition that well. Yeah, no, though. But I'm sure uh, there is one. I'm trying to think now. Maybe yeah. Ghost in the Shell. No, that was a man- that was a Anime, manga first. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure there is one. It's going to bug me now. Yeah, what well, Doom was awful. Tomb Raider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Street Fighter. <laughs> Super Mario Bros. <laughs> yeah, oh, dude. Uh, Resident Evil. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what was the um, what's coming out? Warcraft. Warcraft. Oh yeah, out. Uh, that, yeah. that didn't look bad actually. It didn't look the bad last night. Angry but... Birds as well as. Oh, yeah. Are they actually really doing Angry Birds? It's out. It's out now. Yeah. I remember it was a spoof trailer, wasn't there, about a year or so. Yeah, it's actually out now. Uh, It looks really bad. The app on my phone, which I've not played in like three years, has been updated to the new look, what they look like in the films. And I'm just like, oh, they've probably changed the game as well. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so we'll keep an eye on this, obviously. But um, it is a couple of bizarre franchises. Those games, they had no story behind them. It was (laughs) just like, like, it's an Atari 2600 game, you know what I mean? I, I wonder how they tried to like, 
in Missile Command if they tried to get the controller in there somehow. So, like, in Battleship, the bullets look like the little pegs on the board game. Yeah. So do you think, like, in Missile Command, they'll be like, oh, yeah, the only way we can fight these aliens with these rollerball controls. <laughs> like... <laughs> that, that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah. should get Joe on the case right in this film. <laughs> We've got new rollerball technology yeah. for our noobs. <laughs> you heard it here first. I've just thought of a good one, actually. Wreck-It Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. That See, that was the other way around. That was a film first and the game yeah, came out, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that wasn't yeah. a game That was first. an awesome but, film. They had a few a uh, film, yeah. brands in there, yeah. Great really soundtrack. Good. Great film. Now, um, we've probably all played ports of games that weren't really designed for the platform that we played it on. And um, there's a, an article here on uh, retrogamingmag.com. It's five games that are too much for the hardware. Now, they're basically talking about stuff like... Um, Vortex for the Super Nintendo, uh, Duke Nukem 3D on the Game.com handheld. Oh, I've never God. played the Game.com, but... You don't um, want to. <laughs> no. I, have you played one? I've played one. My friend Richard had one mm-hmm. uh, when we were younger. And uh, any sort of game, to be honest, which was a port to the Game.com, the Tiger, whatever it was, the Tiger Game.com, just doesn't work. So like, they're obviously on about, like, hard, you know, the game's hardware is too much, and obviously on about Duke Nukem, but... Mm-hmm. Resident Evil 2 was ported to that, and it's a terrible port. Yeah. Uh, Batman Forever, which is a terrible game anyway, was on that, but that's a terrible port of a terrible game. Yeah, even so, worse. <laughs> so they're on about Duke Nukem 3D, but uh, to be any any port to that game console. To that, any know. game on that system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just any yeah. game on that system. Was it, was it a black and white console? It's a black and white. Oh, right, it's okay. a touchscreen. Yeah. It came with a stylus, but it was like that early touchscreen technology. Yeah. Tiger, out- Tiger were the ones that did the little LED screens where yeah. it just like yeah. switch before. Oh, I remember yeah, that. yeah. It was it was it was a bit better than that. But okay. it didn't work as well as a Game Boy and it came out like eight years after a Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. So put yeah. it that way. It was only two thousands it came out. Uh, ninety seven. Oh, was it ninety seven? Yeah, ninety seven yeah. I've got here. Yeah. Um yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> well, they also talk about a Doom on the 3DO, which I think, you know, it says here um, games that were too much for the hardware. The 3DO could handle Doom, no problem mm. at all. I mean, it even got ported to like, and it, and it was a, we know the reasons why it wasn't a great port on the 32X. Um, but, you know, if you look at the story behind Doom on the 3DO, essentially it was a rush port, wasn't it? It was like, you know, basically just a beta test kind of thing and they released it. Yeah, but they probably also just used the easiest routes, and, you know, mm. when they got it out. Yeah, kind well, of not optimized. But there is. I even remember playing like um, on the Amiga. Do you remember Z Wolf? Yeah, and that was um, it. Was kind of a polygon-based game, wasn't it? A bit kind of three D. And you play it on an Amiga five hundred, and the frame rate was pretty slow anyway. As soon as you got some enemies on the screen, though, literally you could like watch it kind of redrawing. It was that slow. <laughs> and I love the game, but I just thought, you know, this computer's not fast. A lot of is. those old kind of three D attempting games mm. on Amiga and Atari were just five frames per second yeah, or yeah. 15 frames per second it was really bad <laughs> well even you mentioned here as well I didn't even know they did they put Dragon's Lair to the NES apparently which oh, yeah wow. yeah <laughs> that's, I didn't, I'm sure the angry video game nerd did he did a video on that yeah he did okay. a video on that yeah years ago but yeah he, he did a video on that because of it's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an FMV game at the end of well, the day. Well, exactly. They made yeah. it into a 2D platformer, mm-hmm. but it's like really, really slow. There's so really... many ports of that game like, as you, well. You press jump, and like five seconds later, he jumps. Yeah. Like, it's terrible. Like, well, Of course, Dragon's Lair is on the ZX81 as well, and it's probably better than this. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's from our friend Jim Bagley. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting that I think, you know, a lot of the time, companies just want to get the franchise onto as many platforms as possible and there have been a lot of instances I mean, it used to happen more in like the, the 8-bit and early 16-bit days where you go to the arcade and you play a game and then you'd mm. want to take it home but it'd be nothing like the arcade yeah. because your hardware wasn't up to it do you but... think that ruins the reputation of a system or kind of you know let's 
people down. Well, I always remember the, the key example to me was Outrun on the Amiga, which was an awful port. Yeah. And it's one of those that really, you know, the Mega Drive handled it fine. It was great on the Mega yeah. Drive. But it's kind of one of those where sh- someone, I think, should revisit it now. You know, he's got some more skills. and just yeah. See, I, my first experience of Outrun was on the Mega Drive. Mm-hmm. And as a child, then playing it in the arcade, I can't remember seeing a difference. Obviously, there is a difference. But I think that's because I played it on the Mega Drive first. But if yeah. you do play an arcade game first before you play it on the home console... You definitely see the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Like you see it as a negative thing, kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's the difference with the British home computers and the kind of American consoles. That the Americans were the arcade replica, mm-hmm. and British yeah. were like arcade replica. If you're lucky, yeah, <laughs> yeah. someone ported yeah. it correctly. You know? <laughs> yeah, but even then, a lot of the time it'd only be if a coder was actually, you know, a bit of a perfectionist and put a bit of heart and soul yeah, into it. Yeah. A lot of the time, it'd just be quick, <laughs> dirty ports for quick catch, wouldn't it? It wasn't yeah. rushed for two weeks. <laughs> exactly. Now, this next headline was. Uh, Quite eye-catching, I think. Believe it or not, vinyl now makes more cash for the music industry than YouTube does. Did you ever think you'd be saying that? Vinyl and cash together. That's crazy. (laughs) crazy. Well, they reckon the sales of vinyl have grown in the UK for the eighth year in a row. And now it's only just eclipsing the money that the music industry makes from YouTube, but it's up there. So they're saying um, it was a bumpy year for British vinyl. 2.1 million LPs were sold in 2015, uh, raked in at £25.1 million. And YouTube, the music industry, at the BPI, are kind of their trade body, yeah. uh, they estimated it was £24.4 million. So, you know, nearly a million more has been made off vinyl mm. than YouTube royalties. You see, that doesn't... Considering how big YouTube is mm-hmm. and how much money gets gets thrown around, like... <laughs> Punch your microphone? Yeah, I'm punching <laughs> microphones here. In anger. <laughs> <laughs> how, like big youtube is and how big the music industry is that seems so small for yeah. me 24.4 million like i don't know i i always kind of i would compare the music industry to the film industry and then it's like these new films come out and it's like oh and it's opening for six weeks it's made 800 million like mm-hmm. i can't i can't help but think that is a really low figure that's so, what i thought when i saw it. it's not that the vinyl sales were impressive it's at the youtube it's Money so low. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Is, is that a figure for the national sales as well? Because here it says, you know, the British yeah, LPs are sold on this. Yeah, yeah, it's just UK stats by the looks of okay. it. But I remember, I mean, there's, there's an article here about Spotify. And I think because, you know, the, these kind of online services have got musicians over a barrel, really, because no one buys, you know, or I know vinyl is now selling again, but when was the last time you bought a CD single, for example? You know what I mean? But Lady Gaga, she got one million plays on Spotify. Guess how much she earned up one million plays? Oh, she's got to be like, I don't know, 75,000 or... 108 pounds. 108 pounds. Yeah, for a million plays on Spotify. I was like, I was going to jokingly say like, oh, Turner, like, or something. That is crazy, isn't it? That's why a lot of musicians are now, you know, setting up their own alternative kind of services like Jay-Z and uh, Kanye West and stuff. I I guess if you're a musician and you, you wanted to do distribution, you'd say, oh, I've got these two choices, iTunes or Spotify. Yeah. Or like, a free Deezer, but no one uses that. I'll stick it on YouTube and you don't know much of that. What I see a lot, like, especially in like the kind of alternative and metal scene and stuff, is so many upcoming artists and bands, they just chuck their album out for free because they don't make any money from it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think they just make a little bit of money to make the album or the single from playing shows, which is yeah. really where the money comes from for bands like that. And then they just kind of chuck it out for free just because they want people to hear it. Yeah. So... I mean, or have a really nicely done item, like yeah, a vinyl or a, a nicely it's, printed it's cassette. You for know. you to just say then, like, yeah, uh, Lady Gaga only made 108 quid on Spotify is just maddening. Like, that's just crazy, like, with how big she is as well. Mm-hmm. So 
I it obviously just pays off just to kind of throw it out for free for the fans because yeah. nobody's going to buy it anyway because exactly. they're just going to stream it everywhere. And yeah. let, let's be honest, the music industry's always been really skunk on the artist. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's writers, uh, isn't it? We get most of the cash. But I think, yeah. you know, like you said, it's a touring, isn't it? I mean, Lady Gaga, she's constantly on tour. Yeah. And if one of the biggest artists in the world only earns that kind of money, what is some like small group going to get off yeah, like, exactly. Spotify? So, uh, yeah, so that was quite eye-opening, though. So yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Keep nice. buying vinyl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Support the artists. Now, this is one of, uh, I'd probably say, the best game on the Sega Dreamcast. You've heard about Shen. Is it Shenmue or Shenmue? I say Shenmue. I've yeah, always said Shenmue. Shenmue. I've always but... said that. Someone on a forum the other day was like, no, it's Shenmue. Yeah, no, it's Shenmue. Big yeah. Maybe our, our Nottingham accent, <laughs> Shenmue. <laughs> so, uh, well, we know that Shenmue 3, um, the Kickstarter for that happened. That's on the way soon. There has been a lot of talk, though, about um, Sega looking into remastering um, full HD upgrades of number one and two. Currently investigating, apparently. Well, <laughs> quite interestingly, though, um, if you look at this article, it essentially says, you know, they're yeah, investigating the idea they would love to do it, but it's not quite as simple as porting it over to the current platforms. So what they're saying is, um, one of the main problems with Shenmue is that they had a lot of licensed products in there. Like, if you look at the watch in the game, it's the Timex watch. I totally uh, forgot about that, yeah. All the, in the city, there was, like, you know, branded Coca-Cola stuff machines and, yeah, yeah. and all that. So. Would it not be quite easy just to kind of, like, replace it all, though? Or, no, then again, I guess they might then get annoyed with them. Like well, I think you look at Crazy Taxi and the original on that, you know, yeah. that was KFC and then when yeah, they yeah. re- released it. Yeah, Pizza Hut as well. Yeah, yeah. that had all gone, hadn't it? And even the Offspring music, you know, was changed later on, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, it wasn't yeah, the same yeah. without that. But, um, so, that I mean, one tune. It, well, the, the, the main reason, yeah, but that, you only need that song, you don't need anything else. Yeah. <laughs> that but, just took me back to about six months ago, playing it on Dreamcast with uh, Dan and spending about ten minutes looking for that song before we started playing it. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be on. Um, yeah, but they are saying, you know, that that's one of the main stumbling points but I don't think it's that big a deal I mean I think probably the bigger job is porting it to a new platform either they make like a a Dreamcast emulator for the current platforms or Mm. they just port all the graphics over and do you know do it justice and actually do a proper full on HD update Um, but I think with uh, you know a lot of people don't own Dreamcast and they probably know about the franchise yeah and would be interested in playing these games so I think it would be good to kind of time that around the Shenmue 3 release as well so, I mean, Shenmue 3 earned 6.3 million on Kickstarter. People obviously won it. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when did the original come out? What, 99 and 2001, so it's been a long time. So um, it would be nice to see the, the originals getting some love again, I think, wouldn't it? Definitely, well. We've got some originals getting love here, which is the Sega's Vault that they just released on uh, Steam. Yeah, we talked about this, didn't we, when it got released? Yeah. So what is essentially uh, all the classic Sega games on their own hub on Steam. Yeah, and and we've already got 350,000 uh, Mega Drive and Genesis carts, inverted commas, purchased. That's yeah, Because you purchase the, the cart, <laughs> don't you, online, and it goes onto like your little shelf in the hub, <laughs> which is really cool. But yeah, already a 350,000. When, that, when did that come out? Yeah, it was only about a month ago. I think. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't long ago. Um, but that proves that there is still a massive audience for these games. You see, I didn't think people would be too fussed about it because I saw it and I was like, oh, this trailer makes like it, it's sick kind of thing. Like, this looks awesome. But I was just like, oh, it's just the same games they release on everything. Mm. Like, they had a PS2 collection, they had it, the, you know, the PS3 collection, the Xbox 360 collection. It's just everything rehashed every time but how many times you need to buy Streets of Rage 2 exactly I think I've (laughs) got about 8 copies of Streets of Rage I've got about 8 ways to play it at home kind of thing but the demand's still there obviously we even uh, recommended a Sega pack about a month ago that was with the Humble Bundle yeah and that had quite a few of the titles that they're selling it's, it's now. Always, yeah, it is. It's Streets of Rage re-release. 1, 2, 3, Golden mm-hmm. Axe 1, 2, 3. But, but obviously the demand is there. 
Well, it's interesting, though, because, I mean, if you want to play these games, they're so easy to download them for free and emulate them. Mm. But it proves that maybe, I don't know, do people want to give Sega a bit of love back? Like, oh, we'll pay for the games rather, you know, as a thank you for Maybe if them. they see it just there and it's that accessible, mm-hmm. they're encouraged more to just go for it. Just yeah. go on a mad nostalgia trip, buy all the old games that you wanted, you know. Yeah, and I think it's um, there is something to be said about having you know the nice game artwork and all that rather than yeah. having a ROM in a folder, isn't there? But um, I think you know Sega have got to look at that and think right, they pro- they probably earn more money off this than they have any of the recent Sonic games that have come out on the Wii U, for example. Definitely. Now we talked about Sega. Let's give Nintendo a little bit of love here. Um, the SNES controller has had an upgrade, and you can stick your phone in it. I need one of these. Yeah, this I is just, cool. I just need one of these. <laughs> it's it's saying that it's uh, to the to the millimeter. Mm-hmm. It's an exact copy of the NES controller. SNES controller. controller, yeah. And the D-pad buttons are supposed to be really good as well. So. Well, this looks it, like... Uh, it's, it's not the British one, though, It's is the it? American one with the Palm of Violet Suites <laughs> control yeah. pad. That's always, what I, that's, always makes you think of that. That's what they always make me think of. <laughs> like, so I... Which is it's still cool. It's still a SNES controller at the end mm. of the day, or Super NES. Yeah, <laughs> for our American cousin. I hate that. Super <laughs> NES. SNES, get it right. But, but yeah, uh, no, it, it's still... Pretty cool. But you know, I think this isn't the only one of these. I think I've seen a Mega Drive one online as well. Oh, really? And there's a few There's a few of these kind of retro pads where you can hold your phone at the top in a little case. I really um, I really want one. I'm going away on like a really like rustic holiday to Italy at mm-hmm. the end of the year where like we literally were just going to be in a house and get drunk for the week and just read and stuff. And it's just like I could really do with I'm thinking of just like downloading a load of games for my iPad or my iPhone mm-hmm. yeah. and that would be great for me just to like <laughs> well that's it you've like... always got your phone on you yeah so you can just there you go well to, to explain what this thing is it's um, a Bluetooth SNES controller that you know is pretty much a yeah one on one replica of the original little place on the top where you can put your phone in and it kind of you, you essentially make yourself a little handheld SNES don't you mm, yeah with a bit of software on there and it communicates via Bluetooth and works with um, emulators £24.48 as well Wow, that's pretty so, good. That's not bad at all, actually. That's not actually too much more expensive than buying an actual SNES controller on eBay. Yeah, yeah, the original. They go for like 20 quid or something, don't they? Yeah, well, it's like, as, as well, because, I mean, trying to play these old games on emulators on your phone with touchscreen, they're like, oh, you know, little on-screen joysticks and I've, stuff. I've been putting off buying Chrono Trigger for my iPad Yeah, because of, I really want the game, but it's really difficult to play like an authentic copy of it in the UK. Yeah. So I was just like, oh, I'll just buy it on my iPad when I'm on holiday. And the last like three holidays I've been on, I've still not bought it because the reviews are just like, the touchscreen on it just doesn't work well. Like, so something like that would be ideal for it. Yeah, well, these games were designed for proper controllers, exactly. weren't they? You know, yeah. Touchscreen games, you've got to make from the ground up, I think, to be yeah. anywhere near, you know, usable. Now, um, Going into the history of hacking here, uh, this was really, really big news. When was this back in the 80s this originally happened? Uh, yeah, it? this was in 1984. The Prince um, Philip ha- hack. The Prince Philip hack, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that after a few um, drinks. Uh, what's happened is the National Computer Museum... Mm-hmm. They're the one ha- in Cambridge. Yes, yeah. has been handed some recent documents which reveal more about this hack. Mm-hmm. If you don't know about it, this guy, Robert Schifrin, he was kind of typing random numbers into his modem mm-hmm. and uh, just to see if one of them worked. And one of them did. So it linked him onto this old system on BT phone system called Pestel. Prestel. Prestel. Was, yeah. yeah, just so I can't read. Yeah, linked him to this old system called Prestel. And um, he was looking at the user accounts. Mm-hmm. There was one that had the number 22222222 and the password was 1234. Oh, yeah, very secure. (laughs) Yeah, so he's like, oh, what's this? 
and it was supposed to be for the staff. Uh, he basically logged onto it, and it said, "You are now system manager." Yeah, and he could see everyone's stuff. <laughs> he could see everybody's email, including <laughs> Prince Phillips. <laughs> well, this was Prestel was a very early. I mean, it was um, kind of like a AOL, but in the early eighties, yeah. it was all text based, and. You know, there have been lots of articles that come out about this over the years. So essentially, what he did, he got into the Duke of Edinburgh's email account, yeah. and apparently, there was only a couple of like little pleasantries in there. He didn't obviously use it a lot, but he'd registered for it, and it was just yeah. kind of, you know, customary kind of, you know, thank you letters and stuff like that. So it was very early days, like you said, you know, it was mid 80s uh, when this happened. But um, I remember after that, he did get in loads of trouble, didn't he? Yeah. And it did make the headlines in all the papers. So, but essentially, after that, the um, Computer Misuse Act of 1990 came about after that. You know, after, after all that kicked off and it made the papers and everything, because it was around that time, though, the, you know, the mid-80s when hacking was really, really in the news, because, like, War Games was out about then as well. Yeah. And every kid wanted to be a hacker, mainly to go onto the school systems and change your grades, I think, is what everyone wanted to do. But, yeah, when a member of the royal family got hacked, that was kind of big news all over. So Yeah, I'm sure there was a, a, a phone system one where someone managed to change uh, part of the phone system, so there was free calls. Um I'll try and look at that for next week. <laughs> but I remember there was a really a national hack on the BT system. Oh, really? It was, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, worldwide. Like, everyone was shocked. Just let, <laughs> was... let Ravi try it first, see if it still works. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, a couple more stories before we get to this week's guest. Now, I thought this was quite interesting. Have you heard of the Nuon video game system? I have. I have, uh, yeah. I actually know quite a bit about this. Um, it's the DVD console, if you will, if you want, really want to call it a console. Mm-hmm. Um, which was came out in 2000 when DVD technology first sort of came about. Interactive DVDs. Interactive DVDs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of like a game console built into, is it Toshiba DVD players? Yeah, I think that they had a few. There was uh, Samsung as well, I think. Yeah. Um, it was essentially meant to be, you know, kind of like the DVD format. Anyone could incorporate it into their DVD players, yeah. I think. And I think it came about from some of the people who previously worked on the Atari Jaguar. Yeah, well, I think it's, it was the Atari Jaguar was a Flare 2 chipset. Yeah. I think this was like code and the Flare 3. All so right. essentially it was a success to the Jaguar, really. Yeah. the same team on it. Um, but obviously it never really took off, did it? No, I mean, <laughs> I've looked them up on eBay and they're like, people want like, outrageous amounts for them, like six, £700. The controllers look pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, in I think... It was a bit of a failed console because if you look at the game footage and stuff, it's pretty choppy. Mm-hmm. It's like... The only way I can explain it is like, you know, when you get these like DVDs, these early DVDs, which have like these silly games on inverted commas, like the Dumb and Dumber DVD. It's like where you just click on owls and shoot them with the corks. Like (laughs) the games are literally like that, like really choppy, but slightly 3D, but there was one or two games on it which are meant to be quite good. But I it think says it's got Tempest 3000. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, about to say, it was, yeah. it was Tempest, which was meant to be really good, I heard. Tempest 3000, it's actually apparently one of the best versions of Tempest, yeah. is on the new one. Well, it's but, essentially the follow-up to the one on the Jag, isn't it? Exactly, so, and um, the Tempest was like one of the best games on the Jag as well, mm-hmm. so... But obviously, it depends on how much of a diehard Tempest fan you are. <laughs> yeah, to go and buy this system just yeah. for Tempest. There's only about like seven, eight games that came out on it, I think, in the end. Yeah. But um, it's kind of interesting, though, because I think a lot of companies have tried this. I mean, it was essentially the idea behind the 3DO was that we just have one standardized platform where anyone could make their own variants on it. You know, wouldn't have to worry about making their own yeah. hardware. But um, this really was, it got to the stage in the early 2000s where everyone was buying DVD players and they thought, well, everyone can have a games console in their yeah. home. If we just incorporate this chipset into every DVD player, no one has to go out and buy like a PlayStation or whatever like that. So the idea itself wasn't bad. 
Um, but the fact is, you know, there was only a few of them ever released. And really, this has started to make, you know, well, there's a, the reason I'm mentioning this is there's a nice big thread on Reddit um, all about it called A Closer Look at the New One Video Game DVD System, where um, this guy's posted loads of information, loads of pictures as well. And I think this would probably be a contender for one of, you know, if not the most obscure game system that I've ever seen. You see, I think a good contender, well, you know what, what it reminds me of and what I think would be a good contender is the, is it the Sanyo N- Nintendo? Uh, which was oh, the TV. That was, yeah, in the, the GameCube one. Or... No, 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 no. In the 80s, there was the TVs, which came with a built-in Nintendo. Right. And on the bottom, like, literally, it just had, like, the way... Like, just imagine one of those old-school, like, 80s TVs. Yeah. Like, probably, like, a 14-inch one. And it was just, like, probably, like, three feet tall, because on the bottom, it was a built-in Nintendo. Right. And you could just put <laughs> your Nintendo cartridges into it and just straight up just play. Your Nintendo on it, and the controllers it like had like a little like like drop down piece of plastic where you pulled down, and it had the controllers in there, and they were on wires, and that's what it reminds me of there. But that was a massive flop as well. I well, think, the, think they that had was the uh, GameCube one with the DVD that was built yeah, in as well. That, that as well. was a another. Well, I remember Amstrad did a PC with a Mega Drive built in, didn't they? The Amstrad Mega PC, and yeah. That, yeah. you had like a cover, and you got your floppy disk drive. Yeah. You moved it to the other side, and there was a Mega Drive, like yeah, you know, yeah. There, that, there's the JVC Mega Drive like video player as well, <laughs> isn't there? Like. In 96 or something. I so. think, yeah, none of these systems ever worked. So, yeah, 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 none no, of these took off. So <laughs> why why on earth did the these Neon guys, Neon, however you pronounce it, in the year 2000 thought, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so if you're interested in very obscure systems, um, you know, it's a really, really in-depth look at it. So uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Retro Hour. It will be out again next Friday, downloadable from SoundCloud, Mixcloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, absolutely everywhere, and the website, theretrohour.com. Please do vote for us in the podcast awards. We want to get drunk. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't done it yet, all the links to that will be on our website, theretrohour.com as well. Right then, this week's special guest. Yes, we have Mr. Hoffman. Now, this is going to be a special all about the Amiga demo scene, in particular making music. And uh, right now, just before we get into the interview, we're going to play one of Hoffman's tracks to show just how amazing this guy is. Oh, yeah, how cool and how kind of commercial his tunes are. Then They're not this Amiga little kind of section. They're like dubstep, glitch step. You yeah. know, he's created his own vibe. Very it's contemporary great. sounding, aren't they? And oh, bearing definitely. in mind, this was all made on uh, an Amiga with an, eight, an 8-bit sound chip. Yeah, so. yeah I, I can load up Hoffman's tracks on my old machine and then play. <laughs> so we're going to hear a song from him now, and then we'll find out how we did it. So for the next half an hour on the Retro Hour, all about the Amiga demo scene, Hoffman, and we'll see you next Friday.
Welcome to the Retro Hour, Hoffman. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Now, uh, obviously, recently, the Amiga's been all over the news. We mentioned the new uh, Bedrooms of Billions movies. Coming yeah, out, you know, the there's Amiga a big uh, music section on that as well. There is, absolutely. Now, uh, you know, we thought it might be quite nice to cover a part of the Amiga that's always been very interesting and quite quite sexy, I may say. <laughs> the uh, the demo music scene, which obviously you were heavily involved with. And, uh, yeah, and still yeah are, very obviously. much so. So let's start at the beginning then, Hoffman. What was your first experience with a computer? Uh, well, it has to be... Uh, all thanks to my dad, really. Um, he was massively into technology um, and and really into computers. Um, so he was the you know the the forebringer of the ZX eighty one into our household, nice. which was uh, you know at the time when I saw it, I was like, this is you know, I mean, I was very little at the time, but you know, I was a bit blown away by this. You know, computers, I was just completely sold on it completely. And then we progressed onto a ZX Spectrum, but we only ever had the 16K ZX Spectrum. Mm -hmm. So none of the good games worked on it, which is slightly disappointing. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, gradually progressed uh, onto obviously the Commodore 64, um, which was obviously a wondrous uh, and amazing machine, at which I used to laugh all the Spectrum users uh, in the... Uh, Playground at school. Oh, we're going to uh, get some hate mail now. <laughs> always the way. Yeah, so uh, Playground brawls over that. And yeah, that's kind of, that's where it all kind of stemmed from, really. So, <laughs> Well, you joked about the Spectrum Sinclair rivalry. Um, and a lot, maybe our younger listeners or people who weren't in the UK might not realise, but that was actually proper fierce rivalry, wasn't it? Oh, massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously they would always go, well, you know, our, our graphics don't look that blocky. And then I'd say, well, ours are more colourful, but come on, we got, you know, it definitely sounds better, right? There's, there's no denying that. And <laughs> yeah. it was the uh, rich boys with the C64 as well. Or was the kids whose parents didn't love them, bought them Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Uh, but you were obviously, you know, in those early days when you mentioned the ZX81 and all that, I guess you weren't making music on the ZX81, though. No, I mean, I didn't really get creative until we got to uh, the Amiga, really. You know, with the, you know, with the C64, I had my action replay cartridge for doing various nefarious copies of of games from my uh, cousins and stuff but um you know it only really got as far as maybe changing some text in the game or you know you know putting some cheats in or whatever but um yeah when i progressed to the amiga um it's, it's funny actually because you know when the amiga was about you know around your local town you'd kind of meet other users and stuff so i met uh, a few guys like um andy uh ian and clive and phil aka galahad you know they're all amiga users and stuff and, you know, we were interested in the demo scene at that point, you know, because we'd seen it all, you know, from from all the discs that we used to get. And, uh, you know, at that time in your little crew, you'd kind of divvy out what little tasks, you know, so, so one would be the programmer, one would be the graphic artist and one would be the musician. And I was really into music and it, and, and I partly colorblind as well. So graphics was definitely off the table. So, <laughs> um, so that's kind of, you know, where I fell into kind of doing more creative stuff, really was when I got my Amiga. Well, we had Galahad on our show about a month ago, and obviously he was involved in a lot of the big, you know, Amiga piracy groups, like Fairlight, for example. Um, did, did piracy and the demo scene go hand in hand? Uh, I think uh, initially, yes, it, that's definitely the case. But it did really kind of, you know, by the kind of late 90s or mid to late 90s, you could really see that, you know, people in the demo scene really wanted to try and disassociate themselves from, from the piracy thing. You know, they were really focusing on being creative rather than, all of that, you know, because especially when they were going to, you know, 
progress from the demo scene kind of background into you know trying to get a, a job you know obviously trying to be related to that kind of piracy thing's probably not a good thing so <laughs> it's funny that everyone knows the old amiga pirate groups you know i think even in the software in- industry today it often sends shivers down the spines when you hear those old crew names <laughs> yes <laughs> I, it's I, funny because i think uh uh, I mentioned uh, there's a new guy that started in the office a few years ago, and I said, "Oh yeah, I do Amiga stuff." I said, oh right, oh yeah, yeah, I used to get discs with Skid Row and Quartex on. I was like, "All oh, right, yeah, yeah." I remember a point in the uh, kind of Amiga cracking scene where you know the intros would stop becoming really nice intros, and they'd just be <laughs> copies of other people's intros with different names shoved on them. And I guess that's when all the demo makers left. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you mentioned a good point there. I mean, was it was a rivalry quite big between demo crews from your perspective? Um, I think, well, to be fair, I was I was quite young at the time, um, so it was it was a bit depends. It was quite there was quite a egocentric kind of feel to the demo scene back in the nineties. Crews were like, you know, we're the best and get lost, everyone else kind of thing, um, which you know it's, it's completely dropped off now. Um, as far as you know, the demo scene in, in, in this day and age. There's none of but, that um, elite stuff, kind of. Sorry? You know, we're elite. And you're lamers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it, I mean, there are still, I mean, the thing is, is because it's, it's dwindled down a lot more these days, then, you know, it's, it's more kind of a motivational thing where you, you want people to, to try. But, you know, back in those days, if you, if you released a bad demo, then, it, you know, you'd end up being uh, accosted in the disc mags of the time, like, so... <laughs> Which mags did you used to read then? Uh, mainly Grapevine, which I think was, uh, which started off as, it's funny actually, it started off as like a little uh, single screen thing where you'd scroll through and then it ended up being this behemoth disc mag that came on three discs. Um, but yeah, that's what I used to read. Um, in fact, there was a, a music disc that we did when we were back in Quartz years ago, which was like, it was a compilation of chip tunes. Like I wrote a few, ex- you know, a few new tunes for it and stuff, but we basically just compiled loads of chip tunes that we really liked onto one disc mm. and um and it popped up in the disc mags and musicians were going they've ripped off my tunes and we were like well we just really liked them, <laughs> them on our disc <laughs> like, and, and then, so there was like it packed i think there's two issues of grapevine where where the the issue just keeps going on I mean, it was just i was head in hands like oh god what have you done <laughs> you know what, there is something kind of ironic about you know a lot of these people that were probably involved in piracy groups complaining about that isn't there <laughs> yeah there is a bit, i think yeah so what was your setup back then then what what amiga setup did you normally work on i just had a well originally it was just a, a classic a500 with uh you know the classic 512k trapdoor ram upgrade and two floppy drives um until i got my 1200 and then threw a hard drive in that and the only setup really was just that pro tracker and a sampler and that's you know and obviously uh stealing anything you could hear from any record that you could ever get your hands on so you'd be like you're just listening to music and go oh that drum beat's on its own. Quick, quick, quick sample it. You know? so, uh, what software would you be using? Like what trackers and samplers? Just mainly ProTracker. I can't remember what sampler software I used to use. I think it was um, Audio Master, I think it was uh, originally. Okay, yeah. um, but then they built a sampler directly into ProTracker. So whilst you're writing your tune, you could just go, right, well, I'm going to sample this straight in and then edit it and loop it and fix it all up. So when ProTracker came out with its sample editor, you didn't really need anything else. I remember the action replay cartridge as well. That was quite useful for uh, getting samples, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there was the, the classic thing that we always say uh, through other mod musicians that I've spoken to where, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a faux pas, but we all do it, where we load up somebody else's module, 
and then we clear all the song data. So all we've got is the samples, and then we write a new new tune with that sample set. So <laughs> that, that's all I did on the Amiga. <laughs> everyone used to do it. You might as well just admit it, you know. <laughs> so did you ever attend any kind of demo and copy parties back in the day? A couple. Uh, one was a demo party, or well, it was just a demo party back then, really. I mean, there was a few games flowing flowing about the place, um, but uh, the one that I intended and embarrassed myself massively at was uh, my own group's party, which is the Quartz party. Um, and I must have been about 14, 15, and I got really, really drunk and embarrassed <laughs> myself massively. And it was written in some disc mags, which I did go and dig through recently and decided to never read them again. <laughs> what were they saying then? What were they saying? Uh, just, I, I, I can't remember exactly what happened. In fact, I don't remember very much about it other than... Uh, shouting lots and then yeah it's probably best left <laughs> under the carpet i think yeah we're, we're um, mega jealous as well because we wanted to go to all of those uh old demo parties and get drunk and make fools of ourselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think uh there was a couple uh, uh the destiny party that i went to um as well i can't remember where that was what was the other one? Oh, it was the digital party in 90 i think it was about 96 97 uh, which was the last party that Digital did before they obviously disbanded. Yeah, that, I mean, that was fun. I mean, that was actually the first demo party I ever DJed at, which was quite bizarre. Um, we just, someone else brought their decks along. We just brought along some tunes. So we, uh, me and my mate that, that went with me, when we were just DJing for a couple of hours. No one really took that much notice. You know? <laughs> it was just kind of background music more than anything else. But people um, may, may not have attended these demo parties back then. They kind of set the scene. What was it like then? What, what kind of happened there? It's It's very different to what it is now. Um, that's for sure. I mean, back then it was, um, you know, you'd have obviously, you know, graphics and music competitions. I never really did very well back then, which was slightly disappointing. It was, it, it was still kind of quite an egocentric kind of scene back then. You know, the, you know, the people that were considered elite, you know, the people that did really well. You just wouldn't try and talk to them if you were a, a lonely little uh, lamer like I was back then. So, but essentially, they're reading back about these like demo parties and stuff. I mean, I I, I didn't go to any of them back then. Cause I think I was just maybe a couple of years just below kind of the age where I could go to them, which was you know a bit frustrating reading them. But I did used to go through Grapevine and read about you know the stories people would do like show reports, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was um I think there was a massive incident at the Quartz party actually where um uh someone had just because it was in like a a function room with a sports hall and stuff and and someone got really drunk and decided to grab all of these demo scene stickers and stick them all over the uh the the skittles alley next door which oh, you weren't supposed to go into um but yeah things like that did happen and a lot of them were held in like schools and places like that weren't they as well and like you know town halls and that kind of thing uh, well they, yeah they i mean to be honest they still are <laughs> um it's just that the the kind of people that go to them these days are uh, a, a bit older and a bit a bit less silly to a certain degree. <laughs> I think that's the things to all teenagers back then. I'd read these reports in like Grapevine and it'd always be like, you know, yeah, we, we arrived there at like 11 in the morning, put my mates up on the way. We all went to the off license straight away. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that has changed. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, um, you mentioned DJing at demo parties. Uh, I hear you're DJing at the moment at demo parties and Revision was your last one. Uh, yeah, um, I've, I've DJed there about, I think, every single one so far, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it all kicked off really at um, Sundown, um, which was kind of my re-entry back into the demo scene because I'd, I'd kind of 
I think by the turn, you know, by the end of the 90s, I was kind of doing music in Pro Tracker, but not really involved with the scene and stuff, but kind of gave up on on the scene to kind of do DJing and and music production and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the guy who runs uh, Sundown, Rory, had seen me DJing in... um, Exeter when we were uh, touring the UK and stuff and uh, said no I've looked you up I know who you are I used to used to be in a demo scene why don't you come and DJ our demo party I was like oh well yeah all right that that sounds like fun I mean I I like a bit of demo party and then he also said we also have a a track of music competition I'm like well I haven't done that for 15 years I'm (laughs) I'm definitely up for that so yeah so it's it's uh, that's kind of where it all stemmed from back in 2010 and since I played at Sundown, so kind of they get quite a lot of visitors from other other big parties across Europe, and and then uh, I kind of got invited to play at Revision, um, which is the the biggest one. It's it's massive, like eight hundred to a thousand people in in this massive room for like four days. Um, so I played there for the first year, which was really nervous because. DJing to a, a nightclub is not nerve-wracking. It is, obviously, if you haven't done it that often, but, but you know, you, you kind of know what to expect. You know the clientele are probably going to be inebriated in some form or another. Um, but at a demo party, I just I wasn't sure whether they were going to get what I was doing at all. But um, it, it turned out really, really well. It, it kind of There's actually a video of it online where you see the first 15, 20 minutes of the set and no one's dancing. And then gradually, by the end of the hour, like it's, it's this, it's there's just loads of people on the dance floor. After so long away from the scene, I mean, you went, did, did you kind of get rid of all your Amiga hardware then in the late nineties? I thought I had, but I found it in my dad's garage, which was quite lucky because I didn't really want to kind of, when I first got back into it, go on a kind of emulation tip really. So I wanted to get the old Amiga out, so I, I kind of built it in, back into a tower got a hard drive plugged in and just started uh, using all that. I actually found my old Commodore 64 as well whilst I was there. Um, nice. It was in a sorry state, but um, it still works. So <laughs> They're like tanks they are, aren't they? <laughs> they are. They're amazing. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> well, did, um, did you have to re-familiarise yourself with a lot of it then? It's funny. At first, for the, I think the first couple of tunes with ProTracker, I couldn't remember some of the keyboard shortcuts. Um, so I used like a newer version that had like a little panel for various functions and stuff but uh yeah after, it, it's funny actually kind of the mindset that you have to go into when you're using pro tracker is is completely different to say something like cubase where you can have as many tracks as you want uh you can have effects you know you can just load up as much as you want you kind of have to forward think well i've only got four channels here if i put a, an echo on something that's two channels gone no i've only got two left so you kind of have to forward think and also think about how much memory you're using as well you can't just put loads of massive samples in it and stuff so yeah you've got to get all the sequencing in the blocks correctly exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah which is uh, incredibly time consuming especially when you do silly things like i do which is uh do side chaining in pro tracker patterns I mean, I don't know if you know, it's a, it's a production trick that you hear a lot in like EDM, modern EDM music where the, the sound kind of ducks out whenever the kick's there. Yeah. Um, but you can do it in Pro Tracker, but it means you have, to pay, you have to basically type in about a billion volume commands, which is uh, very time consuming, but um, it's, it's well worth it. Well, I've noticed um, you've been releasing some mods and uh, with your mods as well, I've loaded them into Optimed. And it does mad stuff when you play them. <laughs> it goes backwards and, you know, there's rewinds in there and stuff. It's amazing. That all started actually because of revision, because um, I've been going to it for uh, um, well, from the very first one back in 2011, I think it was. And, and they, so they tracked music competition. I was like, well, I've got to go in with the Pro Tracker one. 
Um, and, uh, and then I think it was the following year I got there and they were like, we're going to show the patterns this year. I was like, well, I'm not prepared for it this year. Like we can, I can definitely do stuff that make, you know, makes the tracker do weird stuff. Um, but then the following year was the year I, I started doing the, the scratching and the, and the reversing and stuff. And it was, um, it was really fun to watch that on a big screen in, in that X, X aircraft hangar. Well, you've invented a piece of software uh, w- alongside Akira, which yes. I've always wanted to use for the Amiga, <laughs> and it's finally arrived. I've always wondered, how's this going to happen? How's this going to work? And it's come out. It's a PT-1210, which basically turns your Amiga into DJ decks, so you can change the tempo, you can cut out channels and load modules into there and mix live with Amigas. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that all, um, it was funny how that started out. It was, uh, I think Akira was, he'd loaded the ProTracker source code and was kind of having a bit of a play and posting some stuff on uh, English Amiga board, which obviously if you're an Amiga user, you should definitely be on because mm-hmm. it's really helpful. Um, and I saw his post about what he wanted to do. And you know, being a DJ, it was like, I was very interested in, well, you know, would this actually work? You know, because the thing is, is if you take a Pro Tracker tune and change the BPM, if you've got a drum loop in there, it's gonna, it's gonna sound terrible. It's gonna mash it up completely. Um, so a little discussion kind of broke out um, about, and I was just asking, well, how would you calculate this? And someone said, well, you just do this. And then I took the formula and then applied it to the the Pro Tracker replay source that I had, and put a, a basic text interface to it, and and we put the formula in and started playing with it, and it was just my goodness it just works we were just amazed like we could even from like the early prototype you could do a dj set um even though it looked awful (laughs) but uh yeah that's kind of how that 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 kind of stemmed from there really um and we took a we took quite a bit of time getting that together because it was just obviously a pet project for us um and obviously we got day jobs and things like that um but when akira got the um the the GUI and the graphics all s- sorted out for the for the interface and we you know put that together with it. I mean, it really just just really set it off. Well, I uh, used to DJ myself, and coming from vinyl onto that is actually not that bad. And you know, <laughs> the beat mixing is not the hard thing for me now. It's finding the mods that kind of fit correctly because there's <laughs> so <laughs> many crazy problem, ones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you could go through a lot of the old uh, demo C modules and, and, you know, especially when there's a lot of them got melodic content, it's quite hard to, you know, squeeze them together. But um, I think if you, you just, I mean, the, the thing is, is that there are so many ProTracker modules. I think I did a, a ProTracker seminar um, at Revision one year um, and I asked, uh, uh, I think it's a Buzz um, to do some stats from Modland of how many ProTracker tunes there were compared to the other formats, and it is leagues above everything else. There was like thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Yeah, I think of there was like forty thousand or something. It's more than that. More than that. Okay, <laughs> but it's amazing because these are all tunes and remixes and stuff that the general public hasn't heard. That only a small section of Amiga societies heard, you know. But to us, yeah, they're anthems, crazy. aren't they? It's yeah, like... they're anthems. Yeah, to us, it's uh, yeah, it's it's good because this software is probably going to bring it out to the general public. I know I've certainly played in a, a few cafes and stuff and done some sets on a PT twelve tens. We've got a little setup, haven't you, with LCD screens and all that rubbish? Yeah, got them yeah. in a flight case and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got it fully going. It's great. <laughs> 
I did, I did wonder whether it's worth uh, uh, breaking out two twelve hundreds into a, into a new single slimline case with a with a control surface on top. That'd be quite fun, wouldn't it? Oh, that'd be beautiful. That'd be beautiful <laughs> I'd yeah. be your first customer. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking back at kind of your uh, you know your your CV, if you like, of groups that you were in back in the day. I mean, Ghost in nineteen ninety two, uh, Defect in ninety three, TRSI, Quartz, Destiny, Focus Jules as Shining well. Focus. I mean, it reads like kind of you know who's who of the demo scene. Um, <laughs> how did kind of the how did you get into groups back then then what was kind of the process oh it was quite organic i think um i mean we'd i you know to this day i cannot remember how we ended up the first group we were in was actually we started our own group in salisbury um which we were called scandal which was a pretty bad name really um uh and that was me clive andy and ian um and then we i can't i think we were at like an ects or you know the european computer trade show that they used to put on and uh, and I think we met someone there and just got chatting. They were like, "Yeah, we're we're uh, we're the UK division of Flashing Bytes." So, like, oh, that, that's, the name's not very good, but you know, we'll we'll join anyway. Um, and uh, then that became Quartz. Um, and then obviously, I think after that, I I left um, and joined another group. And I can't even remember how that happened. I think that was just a. Uh, a, a crazy phone call where uh, someone conferenced about 30 people in using AT&T call cards, <laughs> which is very odd. Um, uh, and you kind of, you just kind of mill about, you know, if you obviously, if your group's not really doing anything um, and the organizers aren't really, you know, pushing anything out, then you kind of, you know, you get a bit cold feet and just kind of, you know, you know, someone might pick up on you or you might even get, you know, headhunted at some point. I think that's what happened when I joined Ghost, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I just got a phone call from the organizer going, I really like your music. Do you want to join our group? I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I always wondered that back then, how, how they kind of all communicated and stuff like that. Because I imagine the UK demo scene pretty much kept the jiffy bag industry uh, going around that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, a lot of it was uh, uh, much to my parents' dismay, uh, phone conversations. And obviously back in then, them days, uh, a phone call to up north was incredibly expensive. And I used to talk for hours um, and they got some nasty phone bills. <laughs> Did you ever do any online stuff back then, BBSs and all that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think um, when I had my first 14.4 modem um, nice. and someone showed me how to blue box, um, I was in. <laughs> it was a way of, I think that what I used to do actually was a, uh, which they still don't know about, which is uh, uh, wait for them to go to bed, then sneak downstairs with my modem and my Amiga after they'd gone to sleep and then connect to all the uh, US bulletin boards using blue boxing uh, to download and, and trade stuff. Um, and then obviously, you know, when the sun started coming up, I, I'd pack it all away and then go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to hide the sounds of the modem. <laughs> yeah, I was just, you know, when it dials, you're like, oh, why, why, no, shush, shush. Cover it, yeah, I, I used to cover it with pillows. <laughs> so people that might not know what blue boxing is, explain what, what process that was then. A mechanism where you used to get free phone calls, um, where uh, I'm not exactly sure how it worked out, but um, or how who worked it out, but essentially... Um, uh, you'd have a piece of software on your Amiga that would send, uh, you'd, you'd have like a, a phone book in it of American numbers um, and you press the button and it would send a break tone. So you'd stuck, you kind of dial an 0800 number. Um, it was the particular 0800 number. So it's free when you're connected to your call. And then the engineer tone would like break the signal and then quick dial your US number and shift the call over to the US. Um, so you just kind of like, you, you get the modem ready you get everything ready, and then you put your headphones from your from your Amiga over the uh, over the mouthpiece, and then break the line and dial, and then 
and then quickly grab the uh, BBS software and get that to connect and then you're in. But I think back then, because it was kind of, you know, we're all naive and like, you know, most of us were teenagers or kids. And I think there was kind of a, you were exploring a lot of kind of this digital universe back then, weren't you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I just remember just connecting to a BBS and having this text kind of, it was, it's almost like a, a game in itself to a certain degree, like a text adventure to, a, I suppose you could describe it, um, where you'd, you know, you'd log in, you know, you'd register for your user, you'd log in and then you'd go and scan the messages and you'd, you know, scan pages and pages of releases or you'd, you know, upload some stuff yourself. It was, yeah, it's lots of fun back then. You know, you mentioned obviously blue boxing and, um, you know, piracy in the demo scene, like we said, kind of went hand in hand. Did you, did you know any, anyone that got busted back then? Only one guy um, that was, uh, wasn't was busted for piracy, uh, but was busted for uh, putting Prit stick over his stamps, no um, which was a, a stamp faking that they used to do back in, uh, back in those days. Because obviously, you know, posting, if you, the guy was like a, uh, a local guy that was a, a massive trader, male trader. Um, so we used to pop over there and, you know, trade like, you know, well, I've got these games. All right. I love those. All right. So you give me some blank discs as well. Cause that was the, the commodity was floppy discs back then. You know, if you had plenty, then you, you know, you're all right. Um, but they used to put, uh, I used to do it as well. I like put print stick over the stamp. So when the, uh, when the parcel arrived at the other end, the stamp mark that they put over the stamps, um, would just wipe off. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> nice move. And what happened yeah. to this guy then? Did they just like come to his house? Uh, yeah, they uh, basically came to his house and just, uh, I think it was written about in a disc mag, actually, one of the really, really early grapevines, um, if you dig it through. Um, and uh, yeah, they just basically turned up with a whole load of parcels that they'd stopped because they, you know, obviously, because he was obviously so many going through his house, you know, it's just a, you know, a, a, a standard residential home with all these parcels going to it. And they got, and someone just got wind of it, and then uh, yeah, I, I think he just got fined at the end of the day, really more than anything else. Well, Hoffman, talking about your current activities on the Amiga, um, you know, we, we, Ravi and I were listening to a few tracks that you've done recently before we uh, called you up this afternoon. Honestly, some of the stuff you do with that eight-bit sound chip on the Amiga is absolutely phenomenal. You've even got a genre glitch hop. Uh, yeah, glitch hop. Yeah, that's um, it's a. Uh... It's a, it's a bona fide genre, um, which, uh, again, it's just one of those things where um, I listen to a lot of dance music across the board, really. Um, you know, I, I, earliest influence, I suppose you could say, is, you know, people like Jar and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when, uh, getting into the dance music scene, uh, I was, I've, I've followed, like, all of the genres uh, that you can kind of really think of, like jungle, mm -hmm. drum and bass, techno, and, and, and all this. And uh, Glitch Hop kind of popped up... Um, like uh, I think about four or five years ago or so, um, and I was I was really into it. Um, and I, was, I just you know I, I, what I kind of like to do with with um, the Amiga is is rather than just kind of writing stuff that sounds like you know a, a mid nineties computer game is to try and get um, you know something kind of fresh sounding in. So so I get and and you know I was influenced by this scene and was just like well I, you know I, I want to try and make this Amiga sound like a, a a big bad glitch hop tune if I can. Mm. Um, and yeah. It definitely has that modern kind of sound and edge, very contemporary. Okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I angle for uh, as much as I can. Yeah. Do you think the Amiga's chip is, you know, Paul is perfect for that? Because it's got quite a gritty sound anyway, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a, a friend of mine was telling me about when he was uh, writing jungle music that um, he was doing like a, an investigation or research into, you know, why, you know, jungle music in particular was, you know, the drums used to sound so, so like, you know, chunky and, 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 and nice and uh he found out that um they had they didn't have enough memory 
on the Akai samplers, or they, you know, it was expensive anyway. So they used to sample stuff at lower rates and lower bit rates, um, which is kind of that kind of squareness that you end up with the sound kind of gives it like a weird gritty warmth. It's, it's quite bizarre. Um, and it's, it's funny because like you can, it, even though there's not really any top end on it, it kind of it exists there anyway. It's, it's, it's such a strange little chip. But yeah, it, it, it sounds great. It's crazy, though, that, you know, kind of for many years after the Amiga or even, you know, when it was at its peak, really, so many musicians actually made a massive effort to try and clean up their audio and make it sound a lot more professional. But now everyone just wants that gritty kind of 8-bit sound yeah. again. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you get that with, uh, you know, a lot of the chip musicians as well. You see that's kind of, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's like nice. The thing is, is that even like a, you know, an emulated square wave or an emulated sound chip just doesn't sound the same as, uh, as you know, you might, you might not notice a difference, but when you look at it uh, in, in your oscilloscope or whatever, you can really see the difference. You know, those chips have got, you know, massive amounts of character to them. Emulation's not the same, is it? No. <laughs> it, it isn't, although uh, uh, <laughs> unfortunately I'm, I'm a bit of a culprit of using a lot of emulation to get my tunes done these days. <laughs> well, it's, uh, uh, it's quite relevant as well because, uh, what is it, Calvin Harris even did his first album with the Amiga and, you know, there's quite a lot of artists. Urban Shakedown did it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. One, one fabulous remix you did was Super Sharp Shooter, the, <laughs> the Hoffman version. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I found the um uh the LL Cool J alphabet sample, which was uh, uh yeah, I, I I completely ripped off uh Zinc's idea but put my own name in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah, and I like that dot mod is killing MP3. Yes. <laughs> oh he did have some he did have some t shirts of that. We'll have to get some more printed, I think. Speaking of your mods, are, are your mods a lot bigger than they were back in the in the nineties? Um yes. They are, particularly for competitions, um, because uh, they do silly things like give me a two meg limit, which you can't actually, I don't think you can actually reach with a Pro Tracker tune. So it's just, I, you know, I use a lot of tricks to, the thing is, it's only got 31 sample slots, which is really annoying because you run out of those pretty darn quickly when you're trying to write something that big. Um, so I have to kind of put like three or four samples in one slot and, and use a, a little piggyback technique to, uh, to get to them. Um, but there's, um, I think when we're doing stuff for um, uh, stuff like the 64K intros or um, there's a, uh, was it the um, executable music uh, competition at Revision where, um, you know, it, it, it's a program file, you know, like, like a demo, but obviously with nothing visual, uh, but you only get 32K. So um, uh, I, th I entered that uh, for the last couple of years and, and we, we do tricks like um, uh, for drum loops, we'll have the individual drums in the file. Um, but then I, I wrote some code to kind of mix, you know, four channels of drums into one massive drum loop. Um, so we're kind of using loads of memory, but there's actually not that much content. And there's, like, you know, like little synthesizers and stuff in there that, you know, generate uh, all the sounds for you. So uh, it's kind of, it, it, it depends on the on the uh, application. You know, if it's for a, for a competition, then, you know, they give me a two meg size limit, then I'm I'm going to fill it up as much as I can. But uh, obviously, if they've only given me 32K, then I've got to, try and think outside the box to make it sound good use every single bite <laughs> yes yeah try to yeah i have i haven't uh i haven't had to do a bite hunt yet um but i've got pretty close to the 32k so far so do you have any uh future plans any new versions of pt 1210 or tunes coming up tune wise i'm not sure we'll have to see what comes out of a sundown demo party which um uh if if anyone's interested uh i'll just do a little plug if you guys don't mind yeah, um sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is uh, running um, from the 15th to the 17th of July um, in Budley Salterton um, in Devon. It's a, a really lovely party, a beautiful location, like really idyllic. And you should get down there. Definitely. If you've never been to a demo party before, it's a really good one to start off with. It's not too big. It's not scary. Everyone's really lovely. Don't, don't, um, don't go to the off-license on the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think that's par for the course uh, this day and age. But obviously, we're, uh, we're a little more sensible these days, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, well, I'm, I'm thinking maybe doing a, a – I'm not sure what I'm going to come up with, but it, it's sundown. Um, so it's obviously the demo party that kind of rekindled my demo scene spirit, really. Um, so I, I have to come with something. Um, what that will be will remain to be seen. Uh, as for PT1210, uh, we've got a, a horrific bug that's been uh, hounding us since its release where it doesn't work on an A12, uh, an A500 uh, with, oh, yeah. with, an old, with an old kickstart on a floppy drive, which um, I still haven't found out what it is. Um, and it's been pretty spirit crushing. Um, but uh, we're going to fire that back up. I think we know, I think we know what the issue is now. Um, and uh, Akira's looking at doing uh, CD32 pad support, so there might be a CD32 version coming out as well nice. um, when we can get the time. But I think um, once we've wrapped that up, I, think, I, d I don't think there's much else that we really need to do with it, apart from you know, a few other features, folder searching and kind of stuff like that. But then I think there's, a, there's another project that Akira's got in mind, which he hasn't divulged any information about so far. But I think it's going to be something, I, I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be something life performance based with an Amiga anyway. So oh, wow. um, we'll, um, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> Crazy to think, though, isn't it? If someone had said to you 20 years ago that, you know, in the year 2016, he's still going to be doing stuff on the Amiga. <laughs> still making mods, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, I packed up my Amiga years and years ago, um, and then moved to the studio kind of stuff. So to think that I'm, I'm, I'm even coding on the Amiga as well. I mean, I do coding as a job for, and I do like database SQL kind of stuff during the day, and then uh, during lunchtime, fire up my Amiga emulator on my work computer and 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 type out some code in assembly. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I don't. It's uh, it's this thing is though. It's it's if you're an Amiga user and you were kind of involved in the demo scene, you have that passion. It never really goes away. You may not do it, but if someone kind of you know pushes you in the right direction, then you, you know you just end up getting getting the bug for it. Really. What, what do you think makes the Amiga so special? Uh, well, it's the last computer with any real soul, isn't it? You know, if you look at all the machines around those times, you know, there's there's kind of a you know a, a heart and a passion to those machines. Everything's, you know, after the Amiga was so, you know, the consoles are a, a bit of a write-off, really, because, you know, you can't get creative with them. You know, they create hardware base. You can't, you know, unless you're working in a game company, you, 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 you can't get to them. And, and at the time as well, it was, it was so elegant in its design and its hardware was just so ahead of everything else. I think it's just, it was the last, you know, the last great mecca of, of, of something you could be creative with in your home that, was, that didn't cost the earth. Yeah, uh, do you remember PCs when they kind of really kind of surged uh, near the tail end of the Amiga were still like, you know, over a grand oh, yeah, to get, yeah. get hands on. And you couldn't really get down to the metal either, could you? Ami Amiga, it was all. Even, even the uh, simple user would be using dopus and yeah. transferring stuff and, you know. It was... Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I, I, I've still got three Amigas here, so I've had to get them for testing PT1210 mainly <laughs> in DJing, so... 
Well, so. Hoffman, you are doing some amazing stuff with the Amiga, and anyone that's not heard uh, many of your productions, I'd implore anyone to go and give a, a listen to the kind of stuff you're doing on the Amiga these days. Is there anywhere that people can go to listen to your productions? Um, yes, if you go to my SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash Hoffman, replace the O with a zero. Um, obviously, don't type all of that in, because you won't get to my SoundCloud page. Um, but yes, Hoffman uh, with a zero. Um, and there's a. if you want to hear the Amiga stuff, there's a... There's a, a Pro Tracker playlist in there, but there's also uh, all the other stuff I do with, um, you know, in the studio, all the break stuff, um, and pretty much all of it's free download as well. So um, yeah, go um, go there, fill your boots. <laughs> <laughs>